In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Natalie. That water was warmer than it's ever been in all the baptisms I did. I think I'm going to preach from there, actually, for the... I wanted to start this morning with a question. When you are filled with fear and insecurity, in those moments that you're wrestling most deeply, uh, maybe something about the future, something presently in your life, maybe something in the past, a loss or difficulty, what are you in most need of? What are our soul's longing for in that moment? Perhaps we would answer that question in different ways, but for me, I would say that I often long for someone I love and trust that would provide assurance, that regardless of what I'm wrestling with, regardless of the the difficulty of circumstance, that, um, that someone is saying, We're going to get through this. I'm with you. It's going to be okay. In fact, that was for uh, the the first uh, almost uh, more than half of my life, that was my dad. Missing him, particularly on Father's Day. He was a man of wisdom. He was a counselor. He was listening. And he was that man of peace. That, that could share with him and he'd listen. And just maybe it was uh, a little bit of his faith, a little bit of his profession, but he provided that sense of assurance to me. And I miss that sense of assurance all the time. I was thinking about this idea. Um, most of you know I have gone back to school and I was away at a retreat center in Southern California and uh, part of it is on spiritual formation, and we're looking at the, the saints of the past, those who really spoke into how we're formed in Christ, uh, desert fathers and mothers and, and uh, mystics and reformers, all sorts of folks. And uh, we looked at um, a, a woman named Julian of Norwich, and uh, she lived in the 13th century, and the story of her life is interesting because in that time period, it was a pretty rough time to live. In fact, some of those things were elements that we've faced. They had a pandemic in, in her lifetime. The, uh, the Black Death or bubonic plague, that was uh, continuing to be ongoing for them. And they were losing lives and she suffered uh, from that. They also had something called the Peasant Revolt, where the peasants, especially serfdom, they were crying out, there was injustices and they were struggling and crying out on the streets. And that was creating havoc and and difficulty. They also had religious persecution. We don't have that as much today, but there were these folks called the, the Lollards. Um, they were uh, John Wycliffe, Wycliffe uh, Bible study translators. They were kind of pre-Reformation. They were criticizing the Catholic Church and saying, you're not doing key things on a biblical way. And lo and behold, the Catholic Church didn't like that, and they had all the power. And so there's this, all this turmoil, and she was criticized um, uh, uh, for her writings and so forth. Julian also, at age 30, became uh, deathly ill, and she was on her deathbed, and they were given the last rites to her. And she had what was called revelations or, or shooing. And she would eventually recover miraculously and write these down in a revelation of divine love. It was actually, by the way, the the first woman to um, uh, have a book printed in English at that time. And so she came up, she recovered, she started to live from those revelations, and then she was in this cell connected to a church, and people started coming to her 
for wisdom and direction. And, and she started sharing in this. Some of her sayings became beautiful and, and powerful. I'm just going to give you two of those because I find a tremendous amount of assurance in these sayings. One says, God loved us before he made us, and his love has never diminished and never shall. She's pointing people to the one thing that is more eternal than anything else in our lives is the love of God. Sometimes life feels like we're saying, God, I thought you loved me. I thought you were my child. Where are you? And hear these words. No, no, no. God's love has always been, has never diminished, and always will be. Julian of Norwich was very significant to our professors, and they gave us a gift while we were there. It was this coffee mug. I have so few, Kendra is very excited that I got a coffee mug <laughs> in this. And yet, it was probably the most famous quote from Julian of Norwich. And I think with the, the previous quote of God's love, it adds a significant depth. It is, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Can you imagine people coming, they're, they're wrestling with the plague, or, or they're wrestling with persecution, or they're, they're wrestling with the injustices in their life, and they come for wisdom and understanding. In fact, I would argue Julian of Norwich should be a picture of what the church is today. The presence and power, the comfort of the Lord in our lives, no matter what we're wrestling with. Now, in the book of Revelation, we uh, are getting into the latter chapters, and we just looked at 12 and 13, and those were some of the hardest chapters in the book of Revelation. It's, it's giving us a close-up look of the, what some have called the trinity of evil, that we're seeing that evil will be growing and, and really, unfortunately, flourishing the closer we get to the end, we looked at the uh, Satan himself, the great red dragon that's represented, the, the beast of the abyss that at some point Satan will be yet again in another way I don't fully understand, will be thrown to the earth again, losing standing and any representation in heaven and will turn his sights on the earth during the seven years of tribulation. We looked at the Antichrist, the beast of the sea, what, what uh, uh, Paul call, calls, he calls him the man of lawlessness or the man of perdition. He's saying that there will be an individual, most believe a political leader in the Middle East that will arise and he will seem like a person of peace. Remember Emperor Palpatine and he'll come and yet he'll form a peace in the Middle East with Israel and then break it midway through the tribulation and then all hell breaks loose on earth in fact we're told in verse 7 that this antichrist is given power and authority to oppress the holy people of God to oppress and command and control all people, nations, and languages. He's given power and authority. And then yet another evil presence, the, the beast of the earth, comes the false prophet. Remember Dolores Umbridge has two horns like a lamb, and yet when that false prophet speaks, he'll speak 
as a religious leader, he'll speak like a dragon and will be after control. And as you read through those chapters, boy, if the book of Revelation ended there with chapter 13, that would be horrible. But thankfully it doesn't end and in fact, as if the resurrected Christ Jesus, who is giving this revelation to John on the island, as if he knows we need assurance, he gives us chapter, chapters 14 and 15. He kind of pulls us out of the timeline, out of the trajectory, and he, and he gives us glimpses, we're going to see glimpses of heaven that I believe are profoundly meant to have an impact on our soul, our hearts. The first one is assurance, that I think after we've just read this trinity of evil, he wants to give us assurance of God and grow assurance and faith and trust in him. The other thing that I believe he wants us, wants to give us, is a sense of urgency for those who don't know the Lord. And then the third thing we're going to see is I believe he wants to help us to grow as being a people of watchfulness that we would be watching world events, that we would be in prayer. Those are the things that I, I think he wants us to sow, sow in us this morning. And would you cooperate with him and with me? I think he wants to invite you to grow in a sense of assurance, of urgency, and watchfulness. Let me pray for us. So Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds, Lord God? Lord, we come desiring to hear from you, your voice in our lives. Lord, would you quiet every other voice, any voice of the enemy, or as we prayed earlier, cynicism, criticism, or doubt, Lord, would you increase your voice, the volume of your voice, so that we might hear you in these verses of Scripture. And Lord, would you uh, anoint my words? Would you help me not get in the way, but cooperate with what you want to do in the midst of people? Amen. All right. Chapter 14, if you would turn with me there, and we're going to look at, again, we just went through these views of the three beasts and their impact in the world, and then verse 14, we just talked, looked at the mark of the beast, and verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1 reads, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I believe this is a picture. John was seeing on earth all the persecution and all the abomination that causes desolation and the, and the Antichrist and the false prophet. And now he's given a picture of heaven and he sees Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb, and he gets a picture of the redeemed, of all the Christians up to this point the first fruits, you and I, in this picture. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. You know what that thunder is? You know what that... Well, let's read. It's really cool. The sound I heard was like a, that 
of a harpist playing their harps, and they sang a new song. All the redeemed, all the Christians sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So this magnificent, powerful volume that's coming from the throne room of God, that's coming from the spiritual realities is our voices singing and worship like the harpist, like instruments, like the violin, Laura, like, like worship, the power. Of, in the, now think of this in context, right? All on the earth is going terrible in the time of, of tribulation and yet a picture of all the redeemed. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamp wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. I'm going to read just a few more verses. Then I saw another angel flying in, the, in midair, and he had the eternal gospel. The one true good news of God, that he loves you, that as Christ died, his son died on the cross for you, and will redeem your life. The, the gospel that we celebrated in Sarah and Joanna's life today. The eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Remember, he had given authority of the Antichrist to every tribe, nation, language of people. But now we see the eternal, eternal gospel going to every Nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. We're going to pause right there in chapter 14. So we are seeing a picture in heaven that is a stirring to provide assurance. And there's always been questions about who is the 144,000, right? We looked at that earlier in Revelation. It's again the same 144,000 that were marked or sealed by the Father with his name. That could be the Holy Spirit. That could be something more visual. We don't know for sure. But they're marked. And I believe it's relatively clear it's not a remnant Jewish believers, as some would say, would say, if you take the 12 tribes of Israel, and if you take the 12 apostles, that represents the Gentile, the non-Jewish people, and you add a thousand in there to say it's a whole lot of people symbolically, you get all the redeemed of the earth. At that point, you see all the followers of Christ Jesus. You could say, well, didn't it say they were virgins? Yes, if you've had sex at any time in your life, you're out. I'm sorry. You've not made it to heaven, right? No. <laughs> yeah, that is a huge bummer. No. No. It, it, that's, again, remember, symbolic language is being communicated and not only providing assurance, but meant to provide conviction. They're saying that these Christians, these people held to the faith, they continue to seek to not defile themselves, to live in every aspect of their life, including their sexuality in a way that honors Christ Jesus. They kept pressing in to the faith. Look at how it says, no lie. They didn't want to live as the world lives, lacking integrity, but, but pressing into the truth and the integrity 
of Christ Jesus. They lived again and again. Uh, they are blameless. They were, they were seeking to honor the righteousness that they received in their baptism. So we are seeking to live out as new creations in life. Jesus is saying those are the folks that will sing this glorious song that will be a part of this eternal gospel that spreads to every nation, even in the midst of the persecution. In fact, even more, even in the midst of the, the, the tribulation, that is these people that clung to Jesus, that seek to live new creation. They're, they are the ones that will be with me and will come and reign on the earth for eternity. Friends, I think this is assurance and also motivation, especially in those moments in our lives that we feel overwhelmed or distraught or we're struggling, especially in those moments when we're tempted to compromise, when, when we're frustrated that life is not going well, when we're looking and saying, you know what, this, this isn't fair, God. I, I've given this up and yet I'm still struggling. Jesus is saying, hold on. Don't you let go. Don't give up. I am coming and you are called to rule with me. I was reminded of, of Jeremiah's words, his famous complaint. I love Jeremiah because he perhaps complains more than any other gospel, uh, any other prophet. And he said this. He said this, Father, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why, why do all the faithless live at ease. Part of what Revelation is saying is that there is going to be a time when it is not going to be comfortable to be Christians. It's not going to be safe to be Christians. In fact, you're going to be, perhaps, you're going to have to make a decision for your faith that you will either be persecuted because you're claiming Christ or you're going to go with the flow. Some folks are complaining about persecution today. The, the story of Revelation is it's going to get a lot worse. There's going to be no advantages. Did you know we have a lot of advantages as Christians in our culture today? There's going to be a day when there's no advantages. It's going to be hard. That's what the mark of the beast was about. That was economic control, that you, you need to claim allegiance to the enemy or life economically and faith and always. It's going to be hard. And that's when the rubber hits the road. That's when our faith is going to be tested. And Jesus is saying, Hold on, trust me. Be, that, be that, that great cloud of witnesses that will rule and reign with me. In fact, he tells Jeremiah from that point, Jeremiah was among the time when the Babylonians would destroy Judah, the southern kingdom, and they would carry off all the Israelites to a foreign land where there would be no ad, uh, advantages of being children of God. It's a picture. You know what he tells Jeremiah to do? Buy a plot of land in Judah, in Israel. As a statement of faith. As a statement of this is really hard and we're struggling and we're difficult and it seems like wickedness is prospering. But I trust you, God. I trust your, your goodness in my life. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I'm going to trust you that you are on the throne and that you are coming back and that I will rule and reign with you. Also, part of uh, my going back to school 
was uh, something called the art of spiritual direction. And it's almost like counseling, but not exactly. It's all a, a little bit of mentoring, a little bit of discipleship, but it's really sitting with folks and listening and seeking to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's a, it's a beautiful experience, actually. And we have, uh, there's four of us, we call it a listening group that we've been practicing with one another online. Uh, so two, one is the director, one is the directee, and two are listening in. And, and there's, there's counsel, and there's prayer, and there, there's things that are happening. And one point there is the scale who is really struggling with her professional life. She has uh, three kids, I believe, um, uh, wrestling, or two kids, um, wrestling with uh, family life and all of these things and going on and on. And one of my friends who's a pastor in this listening group, his name is Stanley. He's a pastor in Singapore, so we're doing this on Zoom. And he just says to Donna, he says, I have a scripture for you. Can we read this together? And so he reads this passage uh, in Isaiah. And it says, um, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength but you would have none of it. For Donna, and actually for all of us, when we're in distress and we're, we're struggling, we want to do something that will change the game. We want to go after something, want to do something. And in this moment, God was saying through another prophet, he's saying, listen, repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Would you just trust me? I know you don't get it. I know you're overwhelmed. I know you're struggling. I know it seems like wickedness is prospering. I know it seems there's a huge temptation for you to compromise your faith. Don't do it. Would you trust? In quietness and trust is your strength. Yes, there's times that we're called to take action. There's times when we're called to be bold and go after things. But there's also times when we're called to simply, in quietness, trust God. Let Him handle the things of life. So we keep returning to that as a listening group. That seems like a lesson that we need to keep learning again and again. There's times in life that the strength or the courageous thing to do is in quietness and trust. Now, the, the vision is going to unfold, and we're going to give a picture. I would encourage you again to read with us, but I want us to jump to verse 14 in, uh, in Revelation 14. It's another picture of the end. Again, it's not part of the timeline. It's this interlude, but I think it's a powerful picture that will provide some assurance but what was the second thing I asked you to be receptive to and open to? An urgency. So let's read in verse 14. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Interesting, he's on Mount Zion in heaven and he's surrounded by the heavenly host and they're worshiping and there's a powerful song, a new song coming from the saints. But now we're moved to another picture with another lesson. 
Seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had a sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, Jerusalem, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, or you could say 180 miles. Does that create some urgency in you? Does that create some conviction in you? This is a picture of Christ, friends, that I don't think we should easily let go of. I know that we like to have uh, Christ on the cross or we like to have pictures of him where he's got a shepherd's crook and, and he's loving and let the children come to me. It's a beautiful picture. Let's hold that picture of Jesus. Absolutely, we need him to be our shepherd. But there's also another picture of Jesus not on the cross, Jesus on the, uh, the cloud, and he's coming with a sharp sickle. I asked Marcia if she had a leftover sickle from the farm. She couldn't find one. But have you ever seen those? There's a blade that's cutting down the wheat or whatever you're harvesting, and Jesus is coming with that sickle. And an angel that are over fire, and this is a picture of judgment, of Jesus on the cloud, gathering, gathering people to him. And those that are not his followers, binding up and sending to the fire for eternity. Friends, this is yet another picture that brings to mind, at least in my life, two well-known parables. And I want us to hold these parables together along with this picture of Jesus on the cloud holding a sickle. The first is his famous sheep and the goats where Jesus as the judge will divide men and women into two sides, the sheep and the goat. And to the sheep he will say, when I was in prison, you came. When I was hungry, you gave me food. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into your eternal rest. But to the goats, and not the good notes, goats, not the, the, the greatest of all time goats. That's the goat we have in our language today, right? No, no, no. This is the worst of all time, right? You don't want to be the greatest of all sinners. At this, He will gather them. And he say, where were you when I was in need? How come you didn't respond to the love of God that always has been present, that I was reaching out to you? How come you didn't take in that love and respond to those around you in need? How come you were angry and hurtful? How come your words did not reflect the love of God? Your life did not reflect the love of God. When I was in prison, you did not come. When I was hungry, you did not feed me. And we don't like to talk about these words in the parable. But these words he'll say, they, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you, are, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire 
prepared for the devil and his angels. I have a spiritual discipline that I like to do on a regular basis, almost daily. And it's in light of this parable. Is that I never want to have a moment where Jesus goes, Eric, I want to talk to you about what you did or did not do on Judgment Day. I always want to be able to say, oh, Jesus, we talked about that, and I repented and you forgave me. Yes. (laughs) Right? I want to have a conversation with him about my life. If there's an area that I neglected, if there was a, a kind word that I missed saying, if there was a moment of serving and loving and expressing the love of God, I want to give an opportunity for Jesus to say, Eric, you missed it in that moment. Would you rectify it? Would you do it differently tomorrow? Yes. Or if there's a sin that I've committed, I don't want him bringing up a sin, right? Hey, on Father's Day in 2022, you did this. Jesus, we talked about that. I asked for forgiveness. I'm wiped clean. Every day, I try and process my life with him. My words, my decisions, and my life. Because I know there's a day when in eternity we're going to process your life together with him. And I want to be one of the sheep. There's a second famous parable. It's much shorter. I'll read the whole parable. Jesus says in Luke 15, 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99? Leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. Friends, I think that we as a church in the West have been distracted We've lost the urgency of those who do do not know Christ. Where is the urgency in the church to share the love of God with people? Where is that in our lives? We're talking about so many other things when we're missing. We're we're not holding before us that there is a day. Jesus has a sickle. There's an angel that will. That's a, a devastating, symbolic picture of judgment of our friends and family who do not know Christ. And they have to give an account. Friends, where's the urgency in our lives to share the love of God with others. I know it's challenging. I know it's difficult. And so there's one spiritual discipline that I'm trying to incorporate into my life that I think is not too difficult. The bar is not too high for any of us. Is that one act of kindness each day that's led by the Spirit, that's being expressed an expression of the kindness and the love of God to the people. Did you know it's really hard to say a hurtful word when you're trying to be kind to someone? I've discovered that. It's really hard to be judgmental and cynical when you're trying to be an agent of the kindness of God wherever you go. 
That the, the love and the kindness, and it going back to the, to the sheep and the goats, it wasn't this expression of faith as important as it, that is. It was really Jesus is saying, can I talk to you about when I was in prison, when I was hungry, when I was in need. It's this expression. What, what the Lord is inviting us to do is because of his love, we would share his love with others and that would be a testimony to a God who loves us. Friends, that's how I'm trying to live with this picture of Christ that is not often talked about. He's seated on a cloud holding a sickle. And my friends and family, just like me, will have to give an account of their lives. I also don't want them to say, Eric, why didn't you tell me? A compelling picture. I hope that this creates urgency and changes the way that we live in anticipation of that day of Christ's return. Okay, chapter 15. We're just going to read this as yet another picture in heaven, another sign that's related to 14. Verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with them, with the seven last plagues. Last because with them, God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. Some believe this is the lake of fire, symbolically represented. Standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb, reflecting back when they were brought out of Egypt and saved from the Egyptians. And uh, Moses led in that song, Miriam led in that song, but now it's this greater song of eternal victory of the Lamb. I'll just read the next verse. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. So this worship that's happening there. Now, the seven angels are going to be the seven plagues, final plagues and bowls unleashed on the earth during this time of tribulation. We'll talk more about the bowls and how they fit into the timing of the seals um, uh, and um, the, uh, the bowls and the trumpets. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, uh, seals, trumpets, and bowls. Okay, we'll talk about that next week. But I want you to fast forward to chapter 16 and look at verse 15. Chapter 15, verse 15. We're going to get to Armageddon. It says, look, Jesus, the resurrected Lord, says, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. You'd see in your bulletin there's a number of references by Christ Jesus and some of the other apostles of him being coming like a thief. When he talks about his second coming, he often talks about being a thief. Why does he use the analogy of a thief? Because we don't have planned appointments with thieves. If you could rip us off at 2 a.m. while we're sleeping, that would be great. No, that doesn't happen, right? 
It comes, they come surprising. They, they catch us. And if, if our, our doors aren't locked, if we haven't thought about that, whatever, we're caught unawares in that way. And Jesus is saying, don't be caught unaware. Be watchful. Be, stay awake. Let me read that verse again. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains closed. Apparently he doesn't want us to sleep in the nude, right? It's symbolic language, all right? So as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. He's saying, be ready, keep watch. That's a big part of why we're doing this series in Revelation, that we would understand what he has revealed about how the end comes, that we would be mindful, that we would recognize the things happening in our world as all under the sovereignty and providence of God, that we would be a people who are awake that this is God's earth and God's plan and God is unfolding and he invites us to play a part in that unfolding. So that third word was watchfulness. And let me just pause in this series of our of our look at Revelation and ask the question, well, what are we watching for? And I want to give you some particulars as a way of summation. And again, this all could be disagreed with. People wrestle with this. Some of you that are dispensationalists, right, that we're just waiting to go zoop into the air. That's all we're waiting for. Out, we're gone, and then all hell breaks loose. I don't subscribe to that view. In fact, I believe the church will be present during all these times. If you recall, when we looked at the seals of chapter uh, 6, I believe, the seals were throughout history. Remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse or the four horsemen of history. They were, they're going to be conquering and there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And we saw those seals that we are in the time of the seals where we're recognizing things like Ukraine is part of the unfolding story of God. But Jesus said those are birth pains. That's not the moment of labor. Would you recall also that I talked about the sixth seal, that that seemed like an event that would happen. I'm going to read it to you. I believe that the sixth seal is an event like the trumpets that will happen just before the tribulation begins. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. I'm reading from chapter 6. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I don't know exactly what that was symbolically represented, but I believe that there will be this incredible event that happens that gets the attention of the world. Again, an invitation to respond to him. I believe, I remember way back when in college when I was wrestling with the book of Revelation and end times and there was a pastor that I really respected. I said, how do I be watchful? He said, watch the Middle East. Watch Jerusalem. Remember when the Thessalonians, they were concerned that Jesus had come back and do you remember what Paul said? We, we mentioned it last week. That there would be a rebellion and that the Antichrist would be revealed. So I believe there will be a political leader that comes and the turmoil and the angst 
especially around the world, but especially in the Middle East, will increase. And there will be a man that is revealed that we will believe will be a man of peace. And he'll create a covenant of peace with the nation of Israel. And maybe we'll celebrate him. Maybe he'll get the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, for creating that peace. But he will be a wolf in sheep's clothing. I believe then the trumpets will begin to unfold during the seven-year time of tribulation. We have that, uh, we have one, the, the summation of that chart. And the trumpets will begin to unfold as events during that time. And we will see two prophets of old come and speak. And then we'll see the false prophet bring in the abomination that causes desolation and the church will be persecuted like never before. And then the end will come. We'll talk about the bulls next. Friends, he's inviting us to be mindful, to be watchful. Friends, he's inviting us to be a people who prays for peace. He's inviting us to be a people who is mindful of the world stage and what is happening and is not arguing a political position. In fact, I think he's inviting us to, to have a faith that is far greater than any political position. He's inviting us to a faith that recognizes the work of God, even when it's judgment, even when it's hard, even when it's struggling. He's inviting us to be a people that even when we're, we're distressed and struggling and the world seems like it's upside down, that we're saying, we trust you, Father. We want to be the people of integrity. We want to be the people of faith. We want to be the people who trust you and loves you and it's hard right now and it seems like wickedness is prospering and yet someday we trust that justice will prevail that all will be made right that all the tears will be wiped away that's what's coming can we live in anticipation. Would you pray with me? Would you just take a moment as the worship team comes forward and those three things, assurance in the midst of distress, a sense of urgency to share the love of God with those who do not know him. Or a sense of watchfulness. Would you just take a moment between you and the Lord? How is he inviting you to grow? If, if you chose one of those, assurance, urgency, or watchfulness. What's he inviting you to? We'll just give you a moment, just between you and the Lord, would you just ask him, what's he inviting you to?